the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mysteries of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. Registration for the Numinous School only happens once a year in spring, and I'll tell you how to find out more about that after the interview. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm connecting with Sarah Kerr. Sarah is a death doula and a ritual healing practitioner. She works with dying people and their families, as well as families navigating the death of a pet, and also lectures and teaches about death care and the healing power of ritual. Sarah previously appeared on the podcast in episode 98, Priestess, Shaman, Mystic, Scapegoat. I want to say something right off the top about this show here, because this episode has had a larger something encompassing it, a field of its own, quite unique among other episodes. The most, well, I'd say incredible, except it did happen, but the most unusual thing happened during the taping of this episode. Precisely what I was asking Sarah advice about around the death of a pet happened to her. So while we were setting up to start recording, I asked Sarah about a funny little noise I was hearing coming through, and she laughed and said it was her cats, and she introduced them to me, and she put one of them outside so we could have some quiet for recording. Well, within an hour of ending our call, I received word that Sarah's cat had been killed in a traffic accident. So this episode is dedicated to Sarah's deceased cat, Luna and all those who are suffering grief over the death of a beloved animal or a tree friend or an ecosystem. And throughout the episode, you might be thinking about them and just know that we're really with you. Sarah generously wrote about her experience on her blog, soulpassages.ca. So if you're feeling particularly moved by this, you can go to Sarah's website and follow along with what happened in the hour after this recording. I connected with Sarah online. She was at home in Calgary, Alberta. So Sarah, what identities do you lead with? I love this question when you send it to me. It's such a great way to start. I lead as a straight white woman living in Western Canada on Tree 7 territory, descended from Celtic ancestry, but having lived in Canada a long time. So settler, Settler, but also of this place, maybe to the degree it might be possible. And for me, and this is a conversation we have a lot in Calgary because it's on Treaty 7 territory, that means being a treaty person. That the treaties were signed a few generations ago, but we are still held to them. And so I take that responsibility very seriously. Mm. Oh, I, I really appreciate that explanation. I've been thinking a lot about, um, and, and I, I wish I could credit where I heard this, but it was just a snippet on uh, uh, CBC and somebody was talking about, um, I think it was about territorial acknowledgements. Uh, but the, the, the thing they said was, so once you identify where you are and the, the, the sense of the land, what does that compel you to do? Isn't that great? So I, I love what you're saying. It compels you to recognize that you need to uphold these treaties. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
Ducey, thank you. You're, you're also a death doula. Tell us about that role. What, what does that mean also? I, you know, I have a sense that death doulas hold space for the dying or for the families, but what, 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 is, what do you actually do? I'm a death doula in a movement where death doulas and death midwifery and this whole lay alternative approach to end of life care is growing. It's really, it's really evolving. And I think in a decade or more or less, we'll have more specificity around it. So I'm a death doula, but my focus is particularly on ritual and ceremony and on helping people navigate the spiritual and soul journey around death and dying. So that's both for the person who's dying or has died and the family and community around them. It's a real period of profound transformation and initiation for everybody. And there are these soul tasks that are required of us as we integrate a death. And so my particular work is around that. Other people who are doing even work calling themselves death doulas like I do will have a different focus. They might be doing Reiki and aromatherapy at the bedside or helping people prepare their paperwork. Lots of different aspects of it, but mine is particularly around death and ritual. So how open are you finding people to language like ritual and ceremony around their death, given we've been a predominantly fairly secular society, many of us in North America for a long time, you know, a few generations now? Well, um, the reality, and I really want to stress this to people who are called to this kind of work, is that it is not a path that's an easy, it's not an easy sell, really. It's hard to find families who are, who are in the whole family ready to do this. So I'm not flooded by clients by any stretch. When I do connect with the family who it's a good fit, then it's a great fit. And one of the ways I describe myself that often resonates with people is I say I'm clergy for the unchurched. Because when death is in the picture, we, we need a larger map, a larger model of how to do it. And in traditional communities, and we all have come from lineages of this, there were religious and spiritual practices that gave us uh, a path to walk through. Do these rituals, make these offerings, sing these songs. This is how you bury someone. This is how you gather afterwards. And there's a kind of um, path to follow. And we don't have that. If, if for folks who aren't associated with a, a really clear religious practice or a spiritual practice, they don't have that, but we still understand we need it. So in that way, people, they kind of cock their heads and they say, oh, okay, I, I get that. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I don't want to pray in this language but actually praying to nature or to the powers of compassion and love and invoking those larger forces. And I invite people to invoke whatever it is they hold sacred. So it might be nature, community, love, beauty. We can call on those forces as spiritual guides. Okay. So um, people are, uh, are interested in that. They often don't really have any idea what ritual is. And if they do, the truth is they often have an image that has to do with naked women in the moonlight. <laughs> People quite regularly say, I'm going to a ritual. Do I have to take my clothes off? <laughs> yeah. Raising chalices yes. while you're wearing cloaks and yes. chanting in some monotone in Latin or something. So I reassure people that that's not what we do. 
And I describe ritual, and it's a, a definition that was produced by a, an organization called the Stanford Ritual Project, which is an interesting reflection that Stanford's looking at ritual. And they say that ritual is an architected human experience that carries meaning and value. And I love that because it, it says nothing about what it looks on the outside. It says what it's about on the inside. It carries meaning and value. So with some families sitting in a circle around the coffee table and having the very first conversation about the fact that one member of this family is dying. They've all known it, but no one's ever said it in the family public space. And I hold that. And it's not a freeform conversation. It's a passing a talking object conversation. That is a ritual. So when it's done, people will say, well, I didn't know that was a ritual. So sometimes it's around definition. It's just creating these structures, really ritual. This is my perspective on it. The ritual creates a structure through which energy can flow. So I work with the family. We come to a sense of where the energy is stuck. And then we create a structure that, that involves our bodies and our hearts and allows that energy to flow. So I'm very interested in how you navigate this piece around crafting rituals. Since, and, and I would invite uh, folks to listen to our pr prior conversation about your credentials for being able to speak to ritual um, as an authority. You know that, uh, I guess to use the language of you know, the field, or the quantum physics or you know, quantum theory anyway, that when we have resonance and repetition and, and frequency, that rituals do become stronger. You know, there's a reason why the Buddhists do things in a certain way and the same words all the time, there's no variation. And so you're talking about some self-directed spirituality and personally created ritual. And I wonder as a space holder, how you navigate that piece that you want to anchor in something powerful. So it's not just open-ended, you know, how do you create that ritual container that is uh, approachable for folks who are not very spiritually literate, but also uh, is anchored and sort of bringing the um, full powers of the ritual container to bear? So many different threads to that question. In my training, and I've had lots of it, and we talked about it on the other um, podcast, I've worked with a lot of Indigenous teachers. And when I first started, I wanted someone just to tell me how to do it. Give me that path. And it became clear both from them and from my dreams and again and again, you know, and people say to me, I can teach you my way to do it, but that's not your path. The spirits are asking you to find a new way. And so really drawing from another teacher of mine, Dina Metzger, who talks about creating new cultural forms. That feels like my path in the world, creating these new cultural forms that allow us to navigate these processes. And so if I were, I don't know, archetypally aligned to say, follow the Andean and Peruvian tradition and walk that path, it would be easier. And to the extent you can, as an outsider and a white person really align with that, which is, there's a lot of questions about that, you can draw on those ancient tracks. The grooves in the record are there and you can step into them and the rituals are stronger. And there's no question about that. When something is repeated through time and through generations, it gets stronger. These new models that I'm involved in helping design are not as strong. And that's just sort of what I've come to. They're, they don't have that ancientness to them, but they have something else, which is that they grow 
out of this time and this place and these people. So they resonate, certainly for me, better than using somebody else's, like another culture's iconography or language or practices. So it, it's a, it's a toss up. Yes, they're not as strong, but they feel more grounded and that we can grow them and that they will grow to be strong. So that's, I guess, the first answer to that question. And the second answer is that, yes, so when I think about how rituals happen, I see it as a series of layers. There's an archetypal foundational energetic dynamic that we are working with. And every human, and perhaps even more than human, is, is um, influenced by that. That's universal. And then different cultures lay different myths on top of those. And those different myths have different images and stories. And above the myths, different rituals are developed, different symbols and gestures. So I'm not following those traditional myths and symbols and gestures, but we're still in the work I do touching the same archetypal foundation. And I work a lot with archetypes and with foundational principles of ritual practice. So I kind of go, but it's almost as if you can, you can put on a play it was, and tell the same story set in different contexts. Mm -hmm. It's the same story. Mm -hmm. So I go down to the same story. Uh, we're not wearing the same costumes as anybody else, but attaching. And for me, that is the core part of it is knowing the archetypal dynamics that are in play. And that's where we attach to the larger force. Okay. So I, I'm imagining folks who are listening that may have someone in their life or they themselves be approaching the threshold. You know, they, they're in the dying time. How do you address, and I'm kind of <laughs> trying to help regulate them right now because, you know, I feel the activation as we start talking about actual death. How do you address the fears that many people have around making errors of omission or commission? You know, what should I do or not do to support my dying loved one? Um, should I talk about this? Should I not, you know, are there, is there like a wireframe <laughs> or like, you know, some kinds of um, do's and don'ts? How do you work with that fear? So this is for people who are supporting a dying person. Yeah. There's not a cookbook of how to approach this, but there are some basic principles. And for the person who is supporting the dying people, person or family, it, what's really important is to be able to be present. And that means having done your own internal work or doing it or continuing to do it so that you can sit with the really difficult emotions and experiences that come with death and dying. It, at its most foundational, just to be able to be there with people. For the dying person, they don't have an option. They can't choose to check out of this experience. They are in it. And if you as a support person say, I have a choice and I'm still choosing to come over there and sit with you in it. I'm not gonna be scared, I'm not gonna run away, I'm not gonna turn my face, I'm not gonna be undone by your tears, I'm not gonna be knocked off kilter by your rage. I am a grounding, balanced force, and that is all about doing your own work to be able to be present. And sometimes it's about calling on a courage that you might not even know you have to access a capacity you, you haven't actually got yet. And I remember the very first client family I worked with, I, um, 
it was an interesting, it's one of, one of really the biggest ceremonies I've done. It was a four or five day. I went and stayed with her family and I was there. And it was a, it was a big initiation. And I, other than a brief experience with my grandmother when she died, I had never really been around a dead body. And I walked into this room. We did work beforehand. I knew the family, I knew the man. He died, I drove out, I arrived, and I walked into the house and there were 25 or 30 people in the house and he was lying in his bed. And they washed and dressed and bathed him and it had been a few hours because they were a bit out of town. And I walked in and I thought, oh, what they need is for me to exude confidence and ease. And it doesn't matter whether I'm confident or not. My job is to do it for them. And I had to find that. And I walked in and I walked over and I put my hands on his hand. They were crossed on his chest. And I leaned over and I spoke to him and I said, hello. And I could feel every set of shoulders in the room just drop. Okay, this is going to be okay. And so it's, it's what's needed. Sometimes you actually have to fake it a bit, but you got to do it. You can't squirm away. So that's really the first process is about developing the capacity to be present. And if you're present and open-hearted, pretty much everything flows from there. Mm -hmm. You know, there are more details and it's a big conversation, but just knowing that death is sad, but it's not dangerous. We've mm -hmm. been taught to be afraid and there are all sorts of limbic patternings around big emotions and cultural patternings around death and endings. So there's a huge conversation about why we're afraid but it's it's a it's a a patterned fear it's not a fear of something real and so the more we can go okay this is sad but even grief won't hurt me it's not going to damage me i just need to be with it i would imagine that you're mostly called in when people want you there but what about the dying person who is checked out who's really in denial and and for whom death feels very dangerous and they're in denial about their own death do you ever bump up against that experience well sometimes it's the family that calls me in and the dying person you know i'm not i'm not hired by the dying person i'm not really directed by the dying person mm. it's by the family and sometimes a parent is dying and the usually it's the daughter it's almost well has always been the woman calling me doesn't need to be that but that's been my experience and she knows that we need something else and she knows her mother's checked out and, and not checked out her mother can't can't be present to it and it's a hard thing to ask people to do at the end of their life that's why we practice all the way through yeah. so really the most important thing is that people get to choose their own way of dying and those of us who want to support it it's really important that we don't come in with our agenda of what we think they should do if somebody wants to be in denial till the very end you know i i float a few little balloons about what's possible and i try and make some safe space to see if they actually want to um, face it but haven't been able to and if they don't that's their choice so just supporting people wherever they're at with however they want to do it because none of us can know what someone else's soul destiny is if that's their path my job is just to support them the people who hire me the larger family usually they don't i'm no i'm no use to them if they don't want to be present because that's what i do is right. help them be present and that's sometimes 
where it doesn't work in a family, where say there are a few siblings and a dying parent, adult siblings, and one or two of them say, no, I don't want that. They, they don't want to be present and they don't want me to come in because what I do is I say, here's a structure to be really present. Mm-hmm. And they actually just want to put their head down and get, heads down and get through. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, this is why we prepare the whole way through so that when it comes to our dying time, we were somewhat practiced or conversant anyway in how we might want to approach that. Um, so I would love to hear you just speak a little bit about what does that mean to live as though we're dying or to prepare the whole way through for our own death? And also, what do you see are the implications of not doing that? Again, it's, it's important to contextualize our individual experiences in a cultural, a dysfunctional cultural pattern. So we're, we're not only doing personal healing work, but as we ask these questions and start to take new approaches, we're flying in the face of some really deep cultural patterns. And those cultural patterns around not liking things to end. We want profits to continue, logging to continue, just everything's gonna go up, up, up. We don't want any aging. And that's not how the world works. So there's a foundational difference between a linear, perpetually up motion and a circular, more natural cycle. Things are born, they grow, they diminish, they die. They take a break, something new is born and diminished. So what that means for individuals walking around and living in this culture is developing a capacity to acknowledge and integrate all the endings of our lives. All the small deaths in our life are training for the large deaths. So you leave one job and start another. You end a relationship, you begin a relationship, your kids leave home, go to university, you have a baby. All these big transitions are experiences of birth and death. Something dies and something new is born. And the capacity to fully let the old thing die, grieve it, do, in my frame, it's ritual work to help our souls adjust. When we, when we really can integrate the thing that's leaving and accept that it's gone, come to peace with that, we sort of, ah, we can take a breath. It's the end of that sentence. Then we can start the next thing in our life. All those little deaths, and some of them are big, ending a relationship, lots of stuff. They're, they're big in our world, but they're not as big as physical death. The more we can do that, the more we get a taste for what it is to let go of something and not be attached. And we know people who can't let go of things. The divorce was 20 years ago and she's still talking about it. Or lots of things where we just have never, let go mean, it's never moved to the next stage. It's an integration more than a letting go. So learning how to do that is critical. And also the other part is being actually with death. And that's a cultural pattern because we push death so far away. So developing models where when someone's dying, it becomes a community event and there are processes for people to be involved and supportive when they're a little bit more in the outer circles. And that teaches us how to do it when we get there. And so your last question is what are the impacts of not doing that? So if we haven't learned how to integrate transitions, when we get to the end of our life, two things happen. One, we have no idea 
how to say goodbye to our life because we've never known how to say goodbye to things all the way along. And the second one is because we're carrying all these old burdens from a life of unprocessed transitions, it's trying to get through that pinhole with a huge bag of rocks. It's harder to get out when we haven't finished our work here. And when we haven't had really personal and experiential connection to death and dying as uh, people in the outer circles, then when we get there for ourselves, it's so new and we're, we're overwhelmed not only by the experience, which is big enough, but by the unfamiliarity of it. And it makes it harder. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think some listeners are like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's like a bit metaphoric. <laughs> I would like to speak, well, I was going to say literally, but it, I guess it's metaphysically. I would like to hear you describe for a person who has died and they've not done that work, what's it like for them or what can happen or what do you notice uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, what's it like for the soul that has this bag of rocks on the other side that are still with them? Well, I think the experience actually happens before they die. So the leaving, even when we're here, people who have unresolved estrangements with people in their family, regrets, apologies from decades earlier that they never really were quite able to say, resentments that they carry, um, all these totally normal and natural human experiences that when we have good psychosocial coping skills, we have, they don't go away, but they, they find their right place and they get right sized in our experience. Uh, I did this thing. I wish I hadn't done it. I have a lot of regrets about it, but I've come to some level of acceptance that it is and it was. That's, that's all integrating is. Doesn't, doesn't mean we still don't cry about it and feel bad about it sometimes, but it's its, it's right sized. And so when people are dying, the thing that almost universally matters the most is the people they love and the people who maybe don't love them and why and who they wish they were. It's about love and relationships and right relationships. So if you've done that relational work all the way through and you have the luxury of having a deathbed, and a little bit of reflection time on your way out. That really is a luxury and a privilege. Mm -hmm. When you're killed in a sudden experience or die in a sudden death, you miss that integration. Mm -hmm. So if you've done your work, your deathbed can be a, a more peaceful and easeful time. Mm -hmm. So that's on this side of the veil. And that's really where the bag of rocks, I think is the most difficult. If you slip through, we leave this dimension, we leave uh, our personalities, we leave a lot behind here. And, and on this side, refer folks to Michael Newton's work on lives between lives as a way of understanding that trajectory, what happens when we get through. And how he describes it and other teachers, and this really resonates for me, is that we come in with lessons to learn here and we, to some degree, kind of choose our lives and the degree to which we integrate those lessons and then leave, we kind of come in at the next level because we've integrated the lessons. If we don't integrate them, 
you know, Newton's in his um, hypnotic work with people, he again and again, people identify being met on the other side after you get through the first initial arrival by these spirit teachers who are wise and kind and firm but fair and they help you evaluate this life did you did you do what you want to do oh that didn't work okay well what did you learn about that okay well it looks like you might have to do that one again how would you approach it if you did it again so there's no judgment there's uh, support to learn and if you if you don't integrate them this time in some way or another you'll get it again and you'll get a chance to try and integrate it then so that's probably a bit metaphoric too. You know, we're talking in big energetic pictures, but that's really the image I have of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can we shift gears a little bit? Because, you know, we're taking a very human-centric approach, but some of the losses that um, many of us experience is, you know, deaths of um, others. So this year, uh, God, I, I still can't talk about it without crying. Someone cut the birch tree down <clears throat> that had been very dear to me. Not just one, actually there were five birch trees right outside my office window. And recently, so obviously it's been eight months. I don't think I'll ever get over it. Um, and somebody said recently that they had a similar experience that a tree was cut down in a public space and just the shock to the system was such a violation. And, you know, you do the things I did ritual, I laid flowers, at the, you know, I did all the things. I continue to do all the things. Um, but I often think about what we now know about trees. So there's one birch tree left after five have been cut. So I give special attention to that birch tree now. Um, and, and I wonder if trees die more easily or not. And I think the same about pets. You know, I had to euthanize my dog a few years ago. Well, I, actually, that's not quite true. He was euthanized because he was dying. You know, I, didn't, I would not have chosen this if there had been any other option, but he was in so much pain. And... And I know lots of people have gone through that experience. Do you think that um, the other than human beings die more easily than humans do? I also have a very deep tree death grieving experience. And uh, so I, I can resonate with that. So there's, Lots of ways we can go with this. There's that story and the trees and that process. Um, and animals. Animals are different. Pets are different. Animals and, and other than human beings of all sorts. And then pets are a slightly different category. Um, so I go down lots of paths with you. You just, just redirect. Take all of them. I, I, <laughs> why don't we start with, with domestic animals? Because okay. That, you know, that's a little bit farther in my past. And then when you tell your story, it'll be very cathartic for me when you talk about trees. <laughs> okay, all right, okay. So in general, um, other than human beings, in my experience and my image, have a more experiential understanding of the cycles of living and dying. 
they understand, understand is not even, but somehow we will use that word, that, that we're in bodies and we're not in bodies and that there are ways of being, and this is an animist approach, that, that we're still beings, we're still people in the world, whether we're in bodies or not in bodies, whether in this dimension or not. Especially Western humans, we've lost that. So that's one of the reasons death is so difficult because it feels like complete annihilation. So I think animals have a more, I'll talk about animals in general. Animals have a more easeful approach with that. Big, they're more aligned with those natural cycles. Pets are interesting. So animals in the wild are one thing, right? They're in a full ecosystem. That cycle is really in play and they just move right through that cycle. Pets are a little different because we have been in this co-evolutionary relationship with pets for so long. And we have said, come out of that natural ecosystem and into our human ecosystem. And we're gonna buy the food and take you for walks and take you to the vet. So we're taking some responsibility. The reason we love animals is because they are connected to those natural cycles. And so they haven't lost any of, or all of that for sure, but not but. And so I think, yes, I think animals die more easily. I don't think they have the attachment to physical body the way we do. And they can, they can move into and out of it with more reliance on those natural laws. With pets, I think, and this is the way I hold it, that because we have taken responsibility for their health and well-being, to a degree, we also take on some responsibility for their spiritual health. And they are members of our families. When I do ancestral meditations with people, I have to imagine their maternal line on one side, their paternal line on the other, and in the center are all the non-humans who are in their family line. So that's family pets. It's for especially nature-based and land-based people who lived in the same place. It's the families of like the actual family lineage of the animals you hunted, the family lineage of the cattle that your family raised, because their children, their children, the family lineage of the seeds that your family grew. So we, we are actually aligned with particular family lineages of other than human beings too. Slight tangent, but back to pets. Pets are a special case in there. And so because they're members of our families and because they love us unconditionally, that love is so much clearer and easier often than human love. I think they die more easily, but sometimes for us, the deaths are more difficult or as difficult. And holding them in a ritual space, which says, just like the ritual task around a human death is to convey the person's spirit where it needs to go. I find it can be really helpful and really moving in and really a, a part of our responsibility as pet owners, human companions, whatever we call it, to say, yes, and I'm gonna make sure you get where you need to go and that there's a ritual there. So that I do that a lot. I do a lot of euthanizing ceremonies for pets. I do a lot of phone consultations with people who are preparing to euthanize because it's a big spiritual question to take a life. And finding a way to, to frame it and, and understand the meaning of what we're doing in a way that fits with our soul can take some work, but it can be found. And so it, there's a lot in euthanizing that needs attention at a soul level. Are there certain um, rituals or 
actions that are kind of the low hanging fruit that, that you recommend to folks? Like here's a simple way to be clear or to say, and this is closed, you've, you've moved on now. Um, moving through these experiences is a series of steps and, and attuning to what's needed at each step. And so if you have a pet and they're reaching the end of their life, one question would be, am I going to euthanize and why am I going to euthanize? Sometimes the pet is in incredible pain or they have problems with bowel control. It's just too difficult. Sometimes um, it's just too much for the human to watch that and they just need to do it. And I have huge compassion for that. And I really, my experience, the pets really have compassion for that. Sometimes I think we don't necessarily think about it too deeply and it's what everybody does, so we do it. And actually it might be that the pet could just die a, a, a quiet, natural death and it would be okay. So I encourage people just to explore that. Maybe that's a fit, maybe it's not. And there's no judgment about any of these. But do I need to euthanize? is the first question. And if for whatever reason, the answer is yes, then okay, move to the next one. Then the next question is, what do I need to do to prepare myself and what do I need to do to prepare the pet? So that the, the what do I need to? Sometimes that's lots of conversation with people. How do I come to terms with this decision I'm making? Very similar decision when people make when they decide to abort a child or uh, medical assistance in dying. Those are spiritual questions you need to explore. And then what do I need to do to prepare the pet? So I've done rituals in advance of euthanizing ceremonies for the pets and for trees saying, this is coming. This is a spiritual warning that something's coming that is unexpected. And we're connecting at a spirit to spirit level and letting you know and giving you all the support we can so you can take the spiritual actions you need to be prepared when this comes. So it's not a sudden death. And that can be really powerful and think, things shift. And I've never had this happen, but I know other people who do this work. And especially when, um, and this is in particular around um, choosing to terminate a pregnancy, sometimes if you really can communicate it, there will be a spontaneous miscarriage. Yeah, and I say, I haven't had that happen, but I know that, mm -hmm. that with enough warning, that can happen. So giving warning and, and preparing them and saying, okay, it's planned for Wednesday. This is what's going to happen. And then on Wednesday, making that a ceremony and really giving it its full spiritual due. That's, what, that's what's painful to our souls when things are done without recognizing the soul significance and honoring the soul transition that has to happen. So for us and for the pet. So that ritual of, of euthanizing and saying goodbye. And I have a couple of really pretty extensive blogs on my site about processes I've done with people that explain some of those details. And one of the practices that, I mean, the whole thing is so exquisitely beautiful in a heartbreaking way, but there's still beauty to it. One of the parts I love is when the vet and I both go to the house and as we get, you know, we do all the different processes and all the different ritual practices. And then at some point, I ask the vet to name the substance, which will be the euthanizing agent. And we name it and we all thank it. And we say, it is not easy karma in the world to be a poison. You take life. 
but sometimes taking life is a healing action. And so for the fact that you're willing to bear this karma, we thank you. And it's a really profound moment. It's often very profound for the pets. And it's, it's a way of going into whatever we do with our eyes open and with full responsibility and with recognition that there are many players in this and that health is about assisting everybody to move through it and be in right relationship with that. Mm. Mm, thank you. That, that, yeah, not a dry eye in the house over here. No. That just sounds so beautiful. What a, what a um, precious honoring for all of the beings and all of the actors involved in this person's death, whether it's a human, human or a animal, being able to, to even thank the agent of death is, that's pretty, that's high level. <laughs> okay, so I feel a ton of impotent rage over the loss of my tree friend, uh, but I find it very healing to hear that I'm, that other people have these like sort of, in our culture, it's just not commonly spoken about, you know, that um, uh, we can have these intense and intimate relationships with the natural world. And I think especially in an urban context, it's pretty easy to imagine, you know, there's these charismatic trees or mountains or, you know, places that we never want to see a bulldozer and people put themselves in, you know, they camp out in the canopy of some great redwood, but you know, a city tree, right? <laughs> it's like people may not uh, expect that response. So I always, I feel a very healing kinship. So I would love to hear how you feel um, about, yeah, just thoughts on how we process when it's, um, when it's a less verbal being <laughs> that we're losing. And we're not only losing individual beings, we're losing full species and we're losing full ecosystems. And that is the, the brutality and the heartbreak of these times. And I don't know that I've fully got an answer to that because when, I, when I'm supporting people around death, what we do is lean into something larger. Right? We lean into natural cycles, we lean into community. And as the larger starts to have less and less capacity and be less and less resilient, I don't actually know, really at a deep energetic level, how we say goodbye to everything. Because, you know, one of my teachers, Joanna Macy, talks about the fact that we're hospicing the death of an old culture and midwifing the birth of a new one. But both of those things are supposed to happen within cultural containers. So what is the whole container that's changing and the ecological container? I think we're being asked to do something that I'm not sure has had a precedent in human history. I don't know that we have archetypal paths for how to do this. We're being asked to hold both ends of a huge transition at the same time. And to hold our own grief and each other's grief and rage about this. So that's a whole other conversation to go deeper into, but this question around the, the individual beings we have connections with, the trees. For me, there are species that are gone, you know? 
a family house that I've been, it was built by my great grandparents in the in 1912. And I've been there every year. My mother's been there every year. My grandmother's been there. I mean, there's deep ancestral connection here as far as a white person in Western Canada can have deep ancestral connection to land. But there are species who are gone. You know, there are frogs and snails and lightning cod and old man's beard and chipmunk. And I could name a list as long as my arm who are gone. And grieving those, giving them their due, and figuring out how to just catch our breath and be there to save the next one. It's a hard time we're living in. It's a hard, hard time. And the only way we're gonna do it is if we find other people who can help us do this and do it together. But the saying goodbye to the snow. I'm grieving loss of snow and loss of cold, loss of dark, loss of silence. Losses so many. And all I can do, and I don't, I don't always find the ability to do this, but to say that the fundamental natural law is that there is birth after death. And that nothing ends, it, it, it can't all end. Something will continue. And so, you know, Joanna talks about working as hard as we can to save what's here, the indigenous languages, the cultural practices, all of it, and creating new models and a new consciousness within which those new models can thrive. That three-part approach really gives me solace. And then, and she would also say, and learning really deep skills for grieving. Because once we can move through the grief, it's hard to be effective and productive when we're disabled by grief. Mm -hmm. To give that grief its due, grieving for the things that the culture doesn't say we should be grieving for, snow, dark, silence, all of that. And then saying, okay, I get up the next day and I do the work. I have the grief ritual, I give it that, and I get up and do the work. Yeah, how do you stay healthy? as a death doula, I imagine there's a certain amount of detachment, but are there also, yeah, like what, what have you learned being one who stands at the threshold and helps to, you know, make sure that we've secured a ritual container? What are some of the things that you do in like a pretty practical level, like physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, what would you say are the things you try to hit to stay healthy and capable? of uh, bearing witness in this way? Well, not everyone is drawn to this work. And so I think those of us who are, are wired for it. Um, I often run into the assumption from people that it is, um, it, that it's uh, somehow pummeling to my system. And I deal with some really difficult deaths, overdose and suicides and violence accidents, not very many, you know, certainly EMTs and people who are more in that space. Yes, there is a real pummeling around that and that needs its own support. Most of the deaths I deal with are um, illness and age and they happen slowly enough that it's not shock and people can integrate them. And my work is coming into that space and creating the structures for as much love as possible to flow. 
and when I'm when I'm on, the spaces I'm in are so thick with love. It is, it blasts my heart open. So I and I get into these intimate spaces. I'll be in the living room on the coffee table with the seven closest people. None of their friends who they've known forever and ever there. It's me and the seven family members. So I'm in this incredibly intimate space and I see how incredibly people love each other. And, so, and sometimes I come out of those spaces and there's been a lot of grief and there's a whole, you know, there's lots of practices I can talk about in terms of how I manage my own grief and my empathetic response. Um, but mostly it's so stunningly beautiful. So I do, I do need to do my own grief work and especially on difficult deaths, I need to do practices around that. But mostly I come out of times with families. I think, oh my God, that was the most beautiful experience I can imagine. I come out sustained and inspired for life. It's so interesting because actually, as you're describing that much love, I'm thinking of, well, certainly myself, but, but many of my clients actually part of the work of, of healing attachment wounds and injuries is about increasing our, our tolerance of receiving love. <laughs> and a lot of us get around that much love and, and actually get a little distressed or activated or a bit shut down. We don't realize we're actually negating of love. It's just like an unusual experience to be totally, you know, be in a room where the air is thick with love. And um, yeah, I just wanted to comment on that, that, that there's, uh, some usefulness in being able to be very present. And uh, it would take, I think, many of us a lot of practice to be present to the amount of love and beauty and wonder and intimacy in that state. Well, in there, of course, this is where there's the practitioner and then the person, right? When I'm <laughs> in a practitioner role, I've stepped aside from all my own attachment wounding capacity because I'm not giving and receiving the love, right? I'm holding it for everybody else. So that's its own pathway. And there's an interesting question, probably a bigger conversation around, um, yes, this, where it's challenging for people to receive love. I have never in any ritual space I've seen, seen a, a pushback. Mm. Never. I don't know if that never is a big word, but it, it's, it's often... I, in fact, almost always, it is not a, a kind of gift of love that's transmitted from person A to person B, where you actually have to look at someone and take what they give you. Mm -hmm. It's different. It's we are in a space where we collectively love each other and we love the person who's dying or has died. Mm -hmm. But it's not a direct kind of linear transmission. It's more a collective circular saturation. Right, you're that, like in a soup rather yeah. than just like <laughs> catching the ball. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Oh, that's so interesting. So, grief and rage, then, for you personally, when you're not in that space holding um, role, how are you processing the grief and rage? You, you spoke about the ecological um, despair, I guess you could say, or just bereftness maybe there are other personal things too. I'm just curious, how do you personally cope with those intense feelings? When they come up in my personal life or around sort of bigger collective changes? Yeah, like when it's a, when it's a real deep arrow that, yeah. that pierces. Yeah. 
I get help. You know? So I have had enormous um, support from homeopathy, especially around grief and shock. Um, body work, osteopathy, acupuncture, lots of those practices um, that it's too much to ask people to carry this alone. And I can't carry it alone any more than anybody else can. So I get help. Um, you know, I think about the, the last big death in my world was my dad who died in 2017. And, and again, there's this big long story about this in my blog. He had had a stroke seven years before. It was a slow expected trajectory. I did a lot of grieving when he first had the stroke with a lot of support. Um, and then when he died, just the way the timing worked, we actually had a month of me going to Nelson where he died and then the, his slow dying, the weeks around his um, caring for his body. And then there was a long weekend in there. And then we came to Calgary and did another funeral. And so it was a month where my family was together every day doing this and sobbed and sobbed and cried and cried. But at the end of the month, when we finished the funeral and sort of lifted our heads up, I thought, you know what, I, I'm okay. I, I still grieve him, but I gave it enough time at the beginning, deeply in every possible way I could, that it's that integrating. Like I miss him and I have lots of tears, but they're episodic. They're not like a, a constant hum in the background. Will you tell me what you did when your tree friend died? It's gonna make me cry. So this place in the East Kootenays that my great-grandparents um, built a house, there were four old growth Douglas trees, Douglas firs. And when they, it's a beautiful lake, they were the first people to build a house in the lake. And when they moved, when they arrived at the lake, they camped at the base of those trees. So in the whole lake, that's where they went. They're huge, huge, two people arms around. And then they built a house and my grandmother was born and then my mother was born and then I was born. And at the time I was a little girl. At this point, this patch of trees was kind of over on the edge. It was three acres. It wasn't really, it took me a long time to realize that's where they camped. But I knew those trees. And from the time I can remember learning how to walk, I knew those trees. And I loved those trees. And every time I went out, I visited them. And that was till I was 30. And then because humans multiply. And we had two families and we couldn't fit in the house anymore. So we split the property and my uncle's family took the other property. And for a variety of reasons, you know, some complicated, some about the tree stability and wind and maybe falling down, he decided to cut them down. And it was his choice. He got to make that decision, but oh, it broke my heart. It broke my heart. I was living in California and I asked him to give me the name of the logger who would do the cutting. My phone, you know, a little small town Kootenai logger guy, this crazy lady from California phones. And I just, I, I wanted to know the day they were going to be cut. And I phoned and I talked to him to ask him this. I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed. And bless this man, I never met him, but oh my God, I have so much appreciation for him. And he said, well, this one and this one probably need to be cut for where the house is going to go but we could just top this one. And it was the biggest and the most important. <gasps> so I talked to my uncle, we agreed. 
and that opened a little. And so I did a ton of ritual work, a ton of journey work, a ton of communicating with those trees, telling them it was happening and helping the other ones draw their energy down, their life force energy out and give it to the one that was gonna stay. And helping the one that was gonna to be topped know to bring it down and to be in its heart. And, you know, the logger Trudor's word, he told me the day he was gonna cut them and I sat in my little house in Oakland and sobbed and sobbed and tried to be present and let them know that they mattered. And, and they were cut. And I probably was there maybe three months later, I was able to show up, but just, I remember my nieces were maybe, I don't know, five and three or something. And the whole family walked over and I just, I just sat on a tree and I wailed and wailed and let the sounds come out of me. And those girls are now 15 and 18 and they still remember that. Like Sarah, <laughs> you really love those trees, didn't you? Yeah, I really love those trees. And the, um, I asked the logger to save me the top 10 feet of the tallest tree. And I made the very top, top tip, the, um, beater for my drum oh and I some of the other top pieces I made other ritual tools with and then I had a fire a ritual fire and burned the top mm. so it doesn't make me miss them less and it doesn't make it less painful and it was 15 years ago and I still I moved to tears around it so, oh. matters yeah and I wish I'd had that it was a shock for me so um but you've given me some yeah. really good inspiration um i've been yeah so in my grief about it and i did ritual right away but that was a little bit more like first day you know it was like triage for who was there for trees. Yeah. yeah triage for trees um and now it's been enough time that maybe i need to revisit because um yeah, my heart winces and contracts and oh, yeah, every time. So thank you for being willing to share that story. I'm sure it's been a healing balm for many of us, um, many of the listeners who've had experiences of, of loss around trees. I really appreciate that. That was really good information. As well, always, thank you. wonderful, like, thank you for this. <laughs> thank you for making a space where we can give voice to these soul truths mm -hmm. because when we hold them in ourselves we think we're crazy because the world tells us we're crazy for crying over a tree we're not crazy <laughs> and we need cultural forms like this podcast and spaces to say we are not crazy this is real and this is true and we validate each other in it so i thank you for that because it's mm -hmm. a huge service mm -hmm. Uh, I do feel validated. Thank you. <laughs> Once again, thank you for being on the podcast, Sarah. I really look forward. We'll for sure have another conversation. These always go great places. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it. Mm. To find out more about Sarah's work, to find links to her website and her many helpful articles and courses, check out the show notes under the podcast tab on my website, carmenspaniola.com. That's also where you can find out more about the Numinous School of Intuition. Just click on the courses link in the upper navigation. So yeah, you like conversations that are heartfelt and affirming and you like talking about 
the great mysteries in the larger field, etc., etc., well, you might be interested in the Numinous School. It opens for registration on June 1st. If you'd like a payment plan, though, you need to get on my email list in March. People ask me usually months in advance, like, how much is it? And like, can I get a payment plan going? And and then they're kind of surprised when I tell them, yeah, it's $495 US. Um, they expect that for a year-long program with two monthly calls that are live, uh, Facebook group, uh, printed textbook, etc., that it's going to be more. Um, but it's not. That's what it is. Uh, still, if a payment plan is your thing, no problem. Happy to do that. But you just have to start the payments in March. So to do so, sign up for my newsletter so you'll get a notification when we begin. Thanks so much for spending time today. I always like to do a little shout out to listeners. Um, I look at my stats a couple times a year and sort of print them off and just go down my list. Uh, Today, I'd like to say thank you so much to my listeners in North Carolina. I know there are a lot of tree lovers out there, so I was definitely thinking of you. Thank you for spending time with me and Sarah and sitting with us in this larger field of this episode. It's really rare and wonderful to, to feel so gotten, you know, knowing you're out there is very soothing for my soul. So thank you for spending this time today. Uh, finally, let's just talk about Quest for a couple minutes here. Ruben and I, my husband, uh, we are leading Quest this year from June 24th to July 6th. It's a 12-day journey, and in the middle, you'll spend four days and nights fasting solo in the wilderness without a tent. I know it sounds intense, but don't worry. Your body and soul are safe with us. We give you training, uh, both spiritually, ritually focused training, and also survival skills. Uh, and Seriously, people come back from Quest like superhuman. They're just, they're they're so true to themselves. And um, yeah, they become not superhuman. I shouldn't say that. More fully human. Anyway, come gather with us and Elder Norman Rataskit and Rancher Charlie Coldwell and his horses, and you'll you'll get what I mean about becoming more fully human together. We'll sit down for lots of homemade meals and fireside chats, and I'll sing you some old Gaelic songs about the moon and the night and finding our way back to each other and feeling a little more at home in this life. So make it easy on yourself and start your payment plans now. And If this isn't your year for Quest, but you'd like a taste of the experience for just a small fraction of the time and the expense, you might consider joining us for Vestalia, a women's summer solstice celebration happening at our Quest location. Um, And that's happening from June 20th to 23rd. Yes, you'll still get to meet Elder Norman Rataskit of Shoeswap Nation, and we'll be feasting and storytelling and crafting and cooking on the open fire. And you'll also have a chance to do a mini solo ritual as you take your turn tending the sacred fire on your own sometime in the middle of the night while the others sleep. It's just you and the fire and the stars and the coyotes and probably my dog Mona to keep the flames alive until our sunrise solstice ceremony on the hill. Get all the details about Vestalia and Quest at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. <laughs>